every so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty Radio Show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Tim Alders. Welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders here on the America Out Loud Network. Isn't it great to have resources that you can turn to? Other voices than the uh, mainstream media uh, fog machine <laughs> so you can get a good take on what's actually happening in the world around you. Well, thanks for being part of our audience. I thought today it might be fun to start with uh, one of the bigger challenges that we defenders of freedom, we disciples of liberty, encounter. And it's, it's not so much that uh, it's keeping ourselves aware of what's going on. Chances are, if you are listening to this program, you are already fairly well dialed in. In other words, you're, you're willing to say, you know what, I don't care what the guys at CNN or even maybe Fox News are telling me. I want to know, you know, a more independent, a more, you know, a, a, a less partisan take about what's, what's taking place in the world. So you're probably doing a lot of that uh, fact-checking for yourself, and that's as it should be. But the big challenge that we often encounter is helping other people understand what's at stake here. In particular, I've been at this for a while, probably 25 years, I would say that I have been a die-hard, you know, talk about it, can't get off the subject of freedom matters, and we need to resist all efforts to, uh, to separate us from our freedoms. And the toughest thing has been trying to help other people understand that we have not only been steadily moving toward tyranny, but actually there's a lot of tyranny that has been enacted. It's there. It's not a matter of, well, it could happen if we're not careful. No, it's, it is happening. And it's not just a matter of, you know, where we're headed. In fact, Caitlin Johnstone, one of my favorite writers when it comes to calling out things as she sees them, says one of the biggest issues that we have is most people simply don't understand how unfree we already are. I mean, does that sound like a pretty good assessment? Now, I want you to understand, Caitlin Johnstone, she, she's from Australia. She's, if you have been paying attention to the news, you probably have seen Australia's getting ugly. You want to talk about a broken society in terms of uh, the government is completely in control now it's calling all the shots and and I'm I'm trying not to engage in hyperbole I don't want to sensationalize this and diminish the value of the message but when you see police gang tackling people handcuffing them forcing masks onto their faces because well this person was standing outside on a jogging trail smoking a cigarette and uh, you know apparently you know didn't uh, didn't have permission to be that far from his house yeah, that's a problem. If a person's behavior is peaceful, there is no reason on earth for their government to treat them that way. But this is becoming the norm. And, you know, you're starting to see some places where in Australia people are pushing back. 
People are actually fighting back against the police. And, you know, that's that's going to escalate. It's going to spiral until there is some very serious violence. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that's a good thing. I don't think it is. At the same time, somebody has to push back. Somebody has to be willing to stand up and say, no further. And when people do that right now, they are met with brutality on the part of the state. Can you see the conundrum? I mean, if more people would just stand up and simply refuse to do what the state is telling them to do, it would make enforcement, uh, it would make it impossible. Are you going to arrest all 100,000 of us out here, you know, at this uh, park or at this protest? Chances are no. And frankly, if the authorities started getting a little bit froggy, uh, we're going to make some examples out of people, you know, pepper spraying kids and shooting people with rubber bullets. If more people were willing to stand up, you would also see people challenge them. You would see people bum rush them and the police would realize they're, they're quickly, they're outnumbered and they, they would have no choice but to either, you know, either embrace their inner tyrant or realize I'm on the wrong side. But even with evidence like this staring us in the face, there is a shocking number of people who cannot accept that we are seeing legit tyranny being enacted. Australia is just further ahead of the pack. I think the key is, if it could happen there, what's to keep it from happening in other first world nations? I like, I like Caitlin Johnstone's take on this. And she's not sitting there moping in victimhood. Oh, you know, poor us. There's nothing we can do. She gets right to the root of the matter. When she says people don't understand how unfree we already are. Here's her take. She says the biggest, most widespread blind spot among those who oppose totalitarian control by the powerful is the assumption that it has already not that it has not already been achieved. She says we've been so busy watching out for the next overtly totalitarian dictatorship that wants to put the jackboot on our necks that we never noticed the covert totalitarians sliding the shackles around our minds. Everyone thinks about the abusers who beat their spouses. But it's harder for them to think about the abusers who dominate their spouses' minds with psychological manipulation. Everyone thinks about psychopathic killers prowling the streets, but they don't think about psychopathic killers who dominate the world via mass-scale manipulation. Good example of this would be, you know, the, um, after the, the bombings at the Kabul airport as the evacuation was taking place out of Afghanistan, 13 U.S. Uh, service people were killed. Scores of innocent people died. And the Biden administration responds by sending a drone strike against an ISIS leader. Yeah, we, we showed him. Except it wasn't an ISIS leader. Fact checkers, which does not include anybody within the American media at this point, at least the mainstream media, in following up on the story, learned that what uh, what the U.S. succeeded in doing was killing an aid worker who had been delivering water to various places of need throughout Kabul. And when he arrived home and his children were running up to the car, that's when the drone strike happened. Seven of his children, along with the guy in the car, wasted. And they were innocent people. But do you think uh, do you think Joe Biden is ever going to miss a meal? Do you think he's ever going to have the inconvenience of someone calling him to account? No, it's it's already gone down the memory hole. 
That's the kind of power that Caitlin Johnstone is talking about. That's the kind of psychopathic killing via those who rule the world through mass-scale manipulation. She says, conspiracy analysts warn the government is trying to give everyone a social credit score to force us all to comply with the agendas of the powerful. In nations where mass-scale narrative management through the media and online algorithms already manipulate people into complying with the agendas of the powerful. She says people assume they aren't already behaving exactly how the powerful want them to behave within a civilization whose political, monetary, and economic systems are already under the control of the powerful. People assume that uh, they're free because they can go and buy whatever they want in an economy rigged for the powerful, using money rigged for the powerful because they can say whatever they want on Internet platforms whose algorithms are being manipulated by the powerful and because they can vote for a politician who only got on the ballot because of being owned by the powerful. Caitlin Johnstone says people think they're free because the system let them elect a populist like Donald Trump. Even after that populist spent four years, in her words, doing nothing but advancing the interests of the powerful. Now, feel free to disagree, but, you know, the fact of the matter is, despite Trump's best efforts, a lot of stuff didn't change. I was grateful for whatever friction he applied against, you know, the the ongoing juggernaut that's crushing our liberties right and left. But the illusion that, oh, yeah, everything was solved. I'm sorry, it, it was an illusion. And we're seeing that more clearly than ever in the aftermath. Now that we've got our guys back in here, now the adults are in charge. Who boy, the adults are working overtime to consolidate their control and domination of everyone. Caitlin Johnstone says people think they're free because the system lets them elect progressives like Bernie Sanders and AOC. Even though those progressives always stop short when it comes time to challenge real power. She says people spent generations arguing for the right to own guns so they can defend themselves against tyranny while the iron bars of tyranny were quietly being constructed around them the entire time. Western leftists are so busy arguing with each other that they haven't noticed how the left has been so effectively sabotaged, hijacked, subverted, and neutered in our society that it's now little more than a glorified group chat. Silicon Valley megacorporations have intimate relationships with powerful government agencies And those agencies are almost certainly harvesting everyone's data to fine-tune their propaganda operations on the public based on what our information tells them about our thoughts and feelings on subjects relevant to status quo power agendas. Caitlin Johnstone says if our information is valuable enough to make Facebook into a trillion-dollar company via surveillance capitalism, then we can be absolutely certain that our information is also valuable enough for opaque government agencies to work on gathering our information for its own purposes. She says the science of modern propaganda has been in research and development for more than a century, which is an eternity when you think of all the advances in other military technologies that have been achieved during that time. They're only getting better and better at this, and now the Internet has given them unprecedented access to the inner workings of our collective psychology. So a wife who's been psychologically dominated into doing everything her husband wants doesn't notice she's being abused because she isn't being beaten into doing those things. 
She thinks she's doing what she wants to do. Likewise, a a population that's been psychologically dominated into doing everything the powerful want doesn't notice that it's being tyrannized because it isn't being forced to do those things at gunpoint. So people think they're doing what they want to. I saw this saying earlier today, and it really jumped out at me. We're not forcing you, they say. We're just taking away everything you need until you agree to say yes. We call this choice. Dang. That's a little too close to home. None of the people warning of the Orwellian dystopia get it, says Caitlin Johnstone. We're already there. We're already marching in perfect alignment with what our rulers desire for us. We just haven't noticed because we're still able to eat McDonald's and watch internet porn. She says we're still tightening the bolts in various ways to, they're, they're still tightening the bolts in various ways to make sure that we don't escape our prison. But she says, make no mistake, those prison walls are fully constructed and have been for a while. Now, here's the interesting part. Those walls aren't physical. The chains are affixed to our minds. But what is the functional difference between a populace which obeys the powerful because it's forced to and a populace which obeys the powerful because it was manipulated into wanting to? Caitlin Johnstone says we're trapped, we're checkmated, at least as long as our minds continue to operate in a way that can be easily manipulated. Now, she says it is possible that humanity can collectively break free from this propaganda-induced trance by means of a mass-scale psychological transformation out of our unhealthy relationship with mental narrative. And there are some signs that such a transformation may be on its way. Here's the thing to remember, though. And these are my words, not not Caitlin Johnstone's. It's going to happen on an individual level before you see any kind of noticeable or appreciable mass effect throughout the public. There's not going to be a top-down transformation. There's not going to be that one jarring event that wakes everybody up and and, and gets them aware and and unwilling to, to participate or to cooperate with the people trying to control them. It starts with individuals like you and me making up our minds that we will be free, choosing to be free, choosing to live our lives as free individuals who absolutely will not compromise and who do not ask permission from the authorities to be free. Oh, I know it sounds pretty radical, but that's the way that freedom is gained. People realize it is theirs to take. They choose to grasp hold of it, and they start walking with it, running, some of them. <laughs> I don't run as swift as I used to, but I'm, I'm there. If you're standing there with your hat in your hand, waiting for someone in authority to say, okay, you have permission not to obey me, it's never going to happen. Caitlin Johnstone says, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Maybe this transformation's coming, maybe not. Every species comes to a point where it either makes the adaptations necessary for its survival or it doesn't. But she says, as the powerful use the chains around our minds to march us all towards this existential cliff's edge, we're about to find out which one we are. I can't help but think you're probably already on the right side, just by virtue of the fact that you're questioning these things. You would listen to uh, the America Out Loud Network. You would listen to the Disciples of Liberty show, among other things. 
but you already know it's not easy. Other people need that example. Far better than the arguments and the eloquent, uh, you know, pithy bumper sticker sayings that we could throw their way to, you know, help them see the light of what's happening. When they see you living as a free person, consciously choosing to be free, that sends a very powerful message. And yeah, not everybody's going to accept it. Some people will just, you know, ah, give me more protection. You know, don't, don't make me think about this. But as Alan Stevo is so fond of saying, stop wasting your time trying to wake up the sheep. They, they don't want to wake up. Focus on rousing the lions. And believe me, there are lions who are paying attention. Going to shift gears here for a second. I've heard a lot of talk in the last year and a half about the importance of following the science. And yet it seems that science is very easily hijacked or or manipulated into helping those who are in power, mainly because uh, those who are in power are often the ones writing the checks that funds the particular science. I mean, come on. If your job depended on you uh, solving a problem, and you were paid handsomely, to, I'm sorry, working on a problem, because there's a difference. If you would pay me $120,000 a year to work on a problem, knowing that, uh, you know, I've got some kind of tenure because it's a government job, automatic cost of living raises built in, almost impossible to fire, maybe, a, you know, maybe a union situation too to further protect me. I'm going to work on that problem as long as I possibly can, meaning I'm not going to solve it. Because if I solve it, I've just put myself out of work. That's the kind of thing we're dealing with. Sheldon Richmond, writing for everythingvoluntary.com, has an article about beware the government science complex. And he puts science in quotation marks. He says the government science complex ostensibly promotes the search for facts about our world but it actually promotes and enforces orthodoxy, protects the resulting paradigms, and manufactures apparent consensuses that are questioned only at one's reputational peril. That's why he puts the word science in quotation marks, because he could have called it pseudoscience or even junk science. Now, in contrast to real science, the science, in quotation marks, is little more than the broadcast of evidence-free alarms that politicians and bureaucrats advised by anointed government-financed scientists used to justify political action and expansion of government intrusion into our lives. Pretty straightforward. Of course, the price is liberty. He says the procedure starts with a politically amenable conclusion and then moves to a search for confirmation, regardless of whatever violations of good science and statistical analysis are required. Those who voice doubts about any of this despite their credentials and previous standing, will be subjected to attacks even on their character. The official slogan of establishment science might as well be orthodoxy first, protect the paradigm. Now, someone of note saw this coming. 1961, President Dwight Eisenhower gave his televised farewell address, which of course has become famous for its warning against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. Most people are familiar with that. But Eisenhower went on to say, we must never let this combination, the weight of this combination, endanger our liberties or democratic processes. 
He says we should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. Now that makes you want to cheer. Far less known but equally important in his eyes was Eisenhower's warning against the government's centralization of scientific research, which became a real concern following World War II and with the onset of the Cold War with the Soviet Union. Here's what he had to say about that. Quote, akin to and largely responsible for the sweeping changes in our industrial military posture has been the technological revolution during recent decades. In this revolution, research has become central. It also becomes more formalized, complex, and costly. A steadily increasing share is conducted for, by, or at the direction of the federal government. Partly because of the huge costs involved, a government contract becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. Now, the prospect of domination over the, of, the, of the nation's scholars by federal employment or project allocations and the power of money is ever-present and is gravely to be regarded. Eisenhower said, yet in holding scientific research and discovery in respect as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite. End quote. Now, Sheldon Richmond says this is truly remarkable, not to mention prescient. He says, I don't know if Eisenhower was quite right. Has public policy become a captive of the scientific technological elite or is it the other way around? He says it's probably a combination of both. But we can readily understand how politicians and government grant managers, for instance, would be naturally attracted to research that supports their wish for more, not less power. Some scientists, who are, after all, human beings too, would then be tempted to cater to this demand, which can create its own supply. If the government shows no interest in financing research that proclaims X, Y, or Z is not a problem justifying a political solution, wouldn't you expect the number of researchers inclined that way to dwindle? He says, for decades, scientists and their universities have prospered through government cash by spreading fear, either real or or invented, or exaggerated, for that matter, too. He says this has gone far beyond research on weapons and other narrow wartime missions. Three prominent examples since World War II are the fear of dietary animal fat and cholesterol, the fear of carbon dioxide, which all life depends upon, and the fear of other people, specifically of catching COVID-19 from them. Now, that's not to say that pre-vaccine COVID-19 was not a serious danger to identifiably vulnerable people, only that it's been exaggerated beyond all reason. So the point here is that this would have been far less likely, maybe even impossible, if scientific research funding were not concentrated in the government's hands, largely through universities which are hooked on taxpayer money. He says many people believe the taxpayers must bear the biggest burden of scientific research because no one else has an interest in doing so. So that's, in essence, a public goods or externality argument for government finance. Because according to this argument, if the cost of doing something would fall mostly on the doer, but the benefits would fall mostly on others, and charging free riders would be unfeasible, well, then no one would have a business interest in the project. That's said to be a market failure because everyone would miss out on a benefit. 
So most economists have thought the government, with its exclusive power to tax, had to come to the rescue for the good of society. But that theory, like the theories used to justify the fears mentioned above, doesn't mirror the historical record. The insistence that basic research wouldn't be done by private firms sounds like the fictional scientist who looked out the window and, or rather, who insisted the bumblebee was aerodynamically incapable of flying. But all he really needed to do was look out the window and watch one fly by. See, it turns out that private investment in research has been profitable, at least when the government stayed out. Great stuff there from Sheldon Richmond. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Are you tired of being tired? Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cells REM Sleep Supplement. These are pill-free supplements in a gel pack. They're so easy to take before you go to bed. I'm so tired during the day now, working so hard, but restless at the same time. I'm going to take a healthy cell before sleep tonight so I can restore my REM sleep and wake up refreshed. Now go to HealthyCell.com, use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD, for a 20% off your first order of any product. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. Is a record player the best way to listen to music? Of course not. So why are you still taking vitamins that haven't been upgraded since the 1930s? Even if your vitamins aren't hard to swallow, it's time to upgrade to Healthy Cells pill-free, patent-pending microgel supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. They taste great convenient on the go, and they're more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. OutLoud.com is the alternative from the agenda-driven globalist. Here, we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. On-demand podcast or real-time talk radio with our streaming apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty show. Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders here on the America Out Loud Network. Hey, I want to ask a very small favor before I go any further. Pay close attention to the sponsors of this program and other programs on the America Out Loud Network. Take the time to let them know that their message is reaching your ears. You can do that by dropping them a line. Better still, you can do it by doing business with them. Make sure they know, though, that their message got to your ears 
via this platform. They will greatly appreciate it, and it will help to to keep these channels of communication open. And I can't think of a time when they have been more needed than, than right this minute. You know, I often wish I had the perfect answer to questions that come up whenever discussing, you know, controversies like COVID. And I don't just mean, you know, in the course of, you know, preparing for a show and speaking to an audience. I'm talking about even in private conversations with family, with friends. Frankly, I find myself having this conversation with my wife. She is not on the same page as, as me when it, comes to, uh, when it comes to COVID. She sees masks as, you know, an inconvenience, but not that big of a deal. She sees the vaccine as mostly helpful and really doesn't have too big of a problem. I guess she doesn't agree with the idea of forcing people, but at the same time, she loves me, but she thinks I'm a little bit nutty because I will not go get the vaccine. So it's not just, you know, we're trying to convince the masses. We're trying to get everybody out there to understand what's going on with COVID. It's more a matter of you are having personal conversations. I know you are because I'm, I'm having them too. And sometimes wouldn't it just be great to get all the facts and figures straight in your head? But unfortunately, it's a complicated subject. And it's not easy to do, even if you see something that really makes a lot of sense. Oh, what was the what was the meme that I saw the other day that just was so on target? I think it was something along the lines of, uh, for the first time, people who haven't taken a medicine or uh, people, yeah, people who have not taken a medicine are being blamed for its ineffectiveness. <laughs> ah, I want to laugh, but I want to cry because it's it's so true. Well, thankfully. There are some people who have been doing a lot of the heavy lifting over the last year and a half. I have become acquainted with a website called offguardian.org. It's off-guardian.org. And Kit Knightley has produced 30 facts you need to know. This is your COVID crib sheet. The subtitle, you asked for it, so we made it a collection of all the arguments you'll ever need. Now, before I delve into this, I just want to offer a couple of thoughts here. They're worth exactly what you paid for them, so feel free to reject it. But the idea here isn't, to, hey, here's the cheat code so you can go out there and you can argue and pick arguments and dominate and own them and, you know, just you know beat people up with your opinion. I know it feels good. I've done it. I've been there many times. My red meat throwing phase was legendary. Loved a good verbal throwdown. But I came to the conclusion it really didn't accomplish much. I mean, it got people riled up. Some people found it entertaining. You actually can build a pretty big audience by doing that. But if you want to change people's minds, or at least encourage them to look at information that could change their minds, do you see the subtle shift in that? I changed your mind. No. What if I introduced you to an idea, though, that you examined, and in your own way, and in your own time, you decided that makes sense and then embraced. Far different dynamic. And if you don't believe me, think about the times in your own life. How many times has someone insulted you or shouted you down or otherwise verbally abused you into realizing, my gosh, I'm wrong and I need to accept whatever it is they're saying? I mean, there's times when, when somebody gets really snotty, like on social media and says something, you know, you either do this, or you deserve to die. I'm tempted sometimes in a snarky way to say, wow, no one's ever put it that way before. 
you are absolutely right. Where can I go get the shot? You know, it's I, I don't do it because that tends to it's it's not as genuine as it should be, and it tends to aggravate people. But if you're serious about speaking to the brainwashed, cutting through that programming and cutting through the brainwashing and helping them see something that they probably don't want to see. I mean, we're all pretty jealous of our mental boundaries. We don't like to bump up against the limits of our knowledge. And there are some things we're just not ready to consider. These are the things that usually make people react violently or angrily or defensively. You know, they'll push back hard. So if you're serious about doing this, here's the secret. Lose the need to win. I learned this from a writer by the name of Paul Rosenberg a long time ago. I still think it's some of the best advice I've ever seen. If you want to influence people, you've got to lose the need to beat them into submission or to view a conversation with them as something that requires a victory. One of us has to be the winner. The other one, preferably, you know, is crushed, left lying in a puddle of their own urine, sucking their thumb and weeping uncontrollably because my argument was that good. One of those is a very destructive mindset that does nothing to calm the, the rage and the, the division that's already taking place throughout our society. The other one has that conversation not for the sake of, you know, rescuing the poor savage from, you know, his, his uh, ill-gotten ways, but from helping a fellow human being, a fellow son or daughter of God, see something but recognize that truth on their own terms. In other words, you plant the seed, you walk away. If they, if they take the hits, you know, I mean, if they, if they lash out at you, take the hits and keep smiling. But if you do that in an attitude of love, you'll be surprised how many people will come back to you at a later point because you did not try to dominate them and you allowed them to look at it on their own terms. You'll be shocked how many people will come back to you and say, I've had some time to think about this and I see your point. Sometimes, in a truly magical moment, they'll come to you and say, I agree with what you were saying. I see what you're saying now, and I, I agree. Don't gloat, by the way, when that happens. It's a, it's a pretty amazing thing. But that's where real organic change takes place. It's on an individual level, and that is a good thing. So with that in mind, I want to share with you what could be a very resourceful tool and something that uh, that you could put to work, especially if you've been trying to keep track of all the differing narratives and all the back and forth arguments and counter arguments regarding COVID. So these are 30 facts you need to know. Your, crib, your COVID crib sheet, courtesy of offguardian.org. Kit Knightley says, we get a lot of emails and private messages along these lines. Do you have a source for X or can you point me to mask studies or I know I saw a graph for mortality, but I can't find it anymore. And Kit says, we understand it's been a long 18 months and there are many statistics and numbers to try to keep straight in your head. So to deal with all these requests, we decided to make a bullet pointed and sourced list for all the key points, kind of a one stop shop. And if you check the show notes, you'll find a link to this. So that's that's going to be worth your while. Here are key facts and sources about the alleged pandemic that will help you get a grasp on what has happened to the world since January 2020 and can help you enlighten any of your friends who might still be trapped in the new normal fog. Now, just as a quick overview to show you what uh, what is possible here. 
These facts cover COVID deaths, lockdowns, PCR tests, asymptomatic infection, ventilators, masks, vaccines, also deception and foreknowledge. That's pretty comprehensive. Let's dive in. Take a look at a couple of these. Tell me if, tell me if you think these, these make sense. So part one deals with COVID deaths and mortality. Number one, the survival rate of COVID is over 99%. Government medical experts went out of their way to underline from the beginning of the pandemic that the vast majority of the population are not in any danger from COVID. Almost all studies on the infection fatality ratio, or IFR, of COVID have returned results between 0.04% and 0.5%, meaning COVID survival rate is at least 99.5%. Now, there's been no unusual excess mortality. This is point number two. The press has called 2020 the UK's deadliest year since World War II. But this is misleading because it ignores the massive increase in the population since that time. A more reasonable statistical measure of mortality is Age Standardized Mortality Rate, or ASMR. And the article has some wonderful charts and graphs to go along with this, as well as links to the various documentation sources. So when you look at the Age Standardized Mortality Rate, What you see is 2020 isn't even the worst year for mortality since 2000. In fact, since 1943, only nine years have been better than 2020. Now, this is for Great Britain. But similarly, in the U.S., the ASMR for 2020 is only at 2004 levels. Now, if you want a detailed breakdown of how COVID affected mortality across Western Europe and the U.S., they have other resources available there. You can click on the, the link provided. But what you're going to find is what increases in mortality we have seen could be attributable to non-COVID causes. Number three, COVID death counts are artificially inflated. Countries around the globe have been defining a COVID death as, and I quote, a death by any cause within 28, 30, or 60 days of a positive test. That's pretty generous. Healthcare officials from Italy, Germany, the UK, US, Northern Ireland, and others have all admitted to these practices. Removing any distinction between dying of COVID and dying of something else after testing positive for COVID will naturally lead to overcounting of COVID deaths. British pathologist Dr. John Lee was warning of this substantial overestimate as early as last spring, but now other mainstream sources have reported it as well. Considering the huge percentage of asymptomatic COVID infections, the well-known prevalence of serious comorbidities, and the potential for false positive tests, this renders the COVID death numbers an extremely unreliable statistic. Here's number four. The vast majority of COVID deaths have serious comorbidities. In March of 2020, the Italian government published statistics showing 99.2% of their COVID deaths had at least one serious comorbidity. Now, that included things like cancer, heart disease, dementia, Alzheimer's, kidney failure, and diabetes, among others. Over 50% of them had three or more serious pre-existing conditions. And this pattern has held up in all other countries over the course of the pandemic. 
An October 2020 Freedom of Information Act request to the UK's ONS revealed less than 10% of the official COVID death count at that time had COVID as the sole cause of death. Here's another interesting point. This is number five. Average age of COVID death is greater than the average life expectancy. Now, this one kind of blew me away only because the U.S. scored so low in terms of average lifespan. Or, I'm sorry, average uh, average uh, COVID death. So, the average age of a COVID death, for instance, in the U.K., 82.5 years old. In Italy, it's 86. Germany, 83. Switzerland, 86. Canada, 86. The U.S., 78. Australia, 82. But in almost all cases, the median age of a COVID death is higher than the national life expectancy. As such, for most of the world, the pandemic has had little to no impact on life expectancy. Now contrast that with the Spanish flu, which saw a 28% drop in life expectancy in the U.S. in just over a year. Point number six, COVID mortality exactly mirrors the natural mortality curve. Statistical studies from the UK and India have shown that the, the curve for COVID death follows the curve for expected mortality almost exactly. I'm looking at it right now, and it's true. Once you get above age 60, and particularly once you get above age 80, that's when people are dying off. I know. What a shock. Who knew that, uh, you know, old people would, would uh, find themselves reaching end of life somewhere, you know, after 80 years of age. But there it is. There's the chart. And it's followed by a chart which shows the chances of dying from coronavirus versus normal annual risk. And they track, again, almost exactly the background risk of death in general. Now, the small increase for some of the older age groups can be accounted for by other factors. Point number seven. This is one I was not aware of, but it's a little bit chilling. There has been a massive increase in the use of unlawful do-not-resuscitate orders. Watchdogs and government agencies have reported huge increases in the use of DNRs over the past 20 months. In the U.S., hospitals considered universal DNRs for any patient who tested positive for COVID, and whistleblowing nurses have admitted the DNR system was abused in New York. Now, in the U.K., there was an unprecedented rise in illegal DNRs for disabled people. GP Surgery sent out uh, letters to non-terminal patients recommending they sign DNR orders, while other doctors signed blanket DNRs for entire nursing homes. A study done by Sheffield University found over one-third of all suspected COVID patients had a DNR attached to their file within 24 hours of hospital admission. Blanket use of coerced or illegal DNR orders could account for any increases in mortality in 2020 to 2021. So there are the first seven facts of this 30-fact crib sheet of things you need to know about COVID. Number eight tackles lockdowns. First of all, with the, the premise that lockdowns do not prevent the spread of disease. There's little to no evidence that lockdowns have any impact on limiting COVID deaths. In fact, if you compare regions that locked down to regions that did not, you can see no pattern at all. And so there's a chart here showing the difference between deaths attributed to COVID in Florida as well as California. 
Not much difference. COVID deaths in Sweden versus the UK, same thing. That virus follows a very predictable track throughout the population. Number nine, lockdowns kill people. There is strong evidence that lockdowns through social, economic, and other public health damage are deadlier than the virus. Dr. David Nabarro, World Health Organization's special envoy for COVID-19, described lockdowns as a global catastrophe in October 2020, saying, we in the World Health Organization do not advocate lockdowns as the primary means of control of the virus. It seems we may have a doubling of world poverty by next year. We may well have at least a doubling of child malnutrition. This is a terrible, ghastly, global catastrophe. Now, a U.N. report from 2020 warned of 100,000 or actually hundreds of thousands of children being killed by the economic impact of lockdowns, while tens of millions more face possible poverty and famine. And this is to say nothing about unemployment, poverty, suicide, alcoholism, drug use and other social mental health crises spiking all over the world, while missed and delayed surgeries and screenings are going to see an increased mortality from heart disease, cancer, and so forth in the near future. So the impact of lockdown would account for the small increases in excess mortality. It's just not COVID that was doing the killing. Okay, here's a hot one here. This is a topic that I know will get some eyebrows to raise up because I get messages on this on a regular basis. What about the hospitals being overloaded? I live in Idaho. And Idaho apparently is one of the least vaccinated states. And so there are a lot of news stories out there talking about, oh, yeah, man, there's so so many deaths. Why, they're having to rent out refrigerator trucks to handle all the overflow from the morgues and so forth. And it's if that is happening, I can tell you right now, um, it's not happening on any scale that would cause people to go, oh, my goodness, this is such a pandemic. We should stay home or we should mask up or we should wear gloves or goggles or whatever. If you were seeing those kinds of deaths, if you were seeing people drop dead in those numbers or die on a ventilator, if you prefer, you would see people starting to really alter their daily routines. But you don't. In fact, I'm sad to report that life is pretty normal here in Idaho. It's actually quite nice. <laughs> I don't mean to gloat, but it's it's pretty cool to see people actually living their lives and not so obsessed with trying to avoid a virus which has a 99.5% survival rate. Point number 10 on this crib sheet, hospitals were never unusually overburdened. This is a big one, mainly because this is part of the narrative that's being pushed so hard right now. The main argument used to defend lockdowns is that flattening the curve would prevent a rapid influx of cases and protect healthcare systems from collapse. But the reality is most healthcare systems were never close to collapse at all. In March 2020, it was reported hospitals in Spain and Italy were overflowing with patients. But this happens every flu season. In 2017, Spanish hospitals were at 200% capacity. 2015 saw patients sleeping in corridors. A paper a journal of a, a journal of the American Medical Association paper from March of 2020 found that Italian hospitals typically run at 80 to 95%, I'm sorry, 85 to 90% capacity in the winter months. In the United Kingdom, the NHS is regularly stretched to the breaking point over the winter. 
As part of their COVID policy, the NHS announced in spring of 2020 that they would be reorganizing hospital capacity in new ways to treat COVID and non-COVID patients separately. And that as a result, hospitals will experience capacity pressures at lower overall occupancy rates than would have previously been the case. So here's what that means in plain English. They removed thousands of beds. During an alleged deadly pandemic, they reduced the maximum occupancy of hospitals. But despite this, the NHS never felt pressure beyond your typical flu season, and at times actually had four times more empty beds than normal. How about that? In both the UK and the US, millions were spent on temporary emergency hospitals that were never used. And something else to consider here, too. Would hospitals really be firing their personnel who refused to get the vaccination if they were so understaffed and so overworked and, and under such intense pressure? Wouldn't make a lot of sense, would it? And yet here we are. So, yeah, it's okay to question because something does not square up. Part three gets into the PCR tests. And this is some pretty interesting stuff. It gets technical quick. But these are things you would want to know if you were going to be discussing this or if people were asking you about it. First of all, point number 11, PCR tests were not designed to diagnose illness. The reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction RT-PCR test is described in the media as the gold standard for COVID diagnosis. But the Nobel Prize winning inventor of the process never intended it to be used as a diagnostic tool and said so publicly, quote, PCR is just a process that allows you to make a whole lot of something out of something. It doesn't tell you that you're sick or that the thing you ended up with is going to hurt you or anything like that. Sadly, I believe he has passed away, so it's not like we can pick his brain some more on this, but I've seen the video clip of him describing it. That's exactly what he says. Number 12, PCR tests have a history of being inaccurate and unreliable. So that gold standard PCR test for COVID is known to produce a lot of false positive results by reacting to DNA material that's not specific to SARS-CoV-2. A Chinese study found the same patient could get two different results from the same test on the same day. I've actually talked to people who've had this happen to them. In Germany, tests are known to have reacted to common cold viruses. A 2006 study found PCR tests for one virus responded to other viruses too. In 2007, a reliance on PCR tests resulted in an outbreak of whooping cough that never actually existed. Some tests in the U.S. even reacted to the negative control sample. Now, the late president of Tanzania, John Magufuli, submitted samples of goat, pawpaw, and motor oil for PCR testing. Would you be surprised to know that all came back positive for the virus? As early as February of 2020, experts were admitting the test was unreliable. Dr. Wang Cheng, president of the Chinese Academy of Medical Sciences, told Chinese state television the accuracy of the test is only 30 to 50 percent. Now, that could give us some inflated case numbers, don't you think? The Australian government's own website claimed there's limited evidence available to assess the accuracy and clinical utility of available COVID-19 tests. And a Portuguese court ruled that PCR tests were unreliable and should not be used for diagnosis. Now, there's more on the PCR tests. I'm going to skip ahead, though, and go to asymptomatic infection. This is point number 16. 
the majority of COVID infections are asymptomatic. From as early as March of 2020, studies done in Italy were suggesting 50 to 75% of positive COVID tests had no symptoms. Another UK study from August 2020 found as much as 86% of COVID patients experienced no viral symptoms at all. It's literally impossible to tell the difference between an asymptomatic case and a false positive test result. That makes sense. Number 17 says there is very little evidence supporting the alleged danger of asymptomatic transmission. In June 2020, Dr. Maria van Kerkhove, head of the World Health Organization's Emerging Diseases and Zoonosis Unit, said, from the data we have, it seems to be, it still seems to be rare that an asymptomatic person actually transmits onward to a secondary individual. Now, a meta-analysis of COVID studies published by the Journal of American Medical Association in December of 2020 found that asymptomatic carriers had a less than 1% chance of infecting people within their household. Another study done on influenza in 2009 found limited evidence to suggest the importance of asymptomatic transmission. The role of asymptomatic or presymptomatic influenza infected individuals in disease transmission may have been overestimated. Now, given the known flaws of the PCR tests, many asymptomatic cases may have just been false positives. This brings us to ventilators. Point number 18, ventilation is not a treatment for respiratory viruses. Mechanical ventilation is not and has never been recommended treatment for respiratory infection of any kind. In the early days of the pandemic, many doctors came forward questioning the use of ventilators to treat covid Writing in The Spectator, Dr. Matt Strauss stated, Ventilators do not cure any disease. They can fill your lungs with air when you find yourself unable to do so yourself. They are associated with lung diseases in the public's consciousness, but this is not, in fact, their most common or most appropriate application. German pulmonologist Dr. Thomas Voschar, chairman of the Association of Pneumatological Clinics, said, When we first read the studies, when we read the first studies, rather, and reports from China and Italy, we immediately asked ourselves why intubation was so common there. This contradicted our clinical experience with viral pneumonia. But despite this, the World Health Organization, the CDC, ECDC, and NHS all recommended COVID patients be ventilated instead of using non-invasive methods. So this was not a medical policy designed to best treat the patients but rather to reduce the hypothetical spread of COVID by preventing patients from exhaling aerosol droplets. This is to say nothing about the fact that ventilators killed people. That's point number 19. Putting someone on a ventilator who's suffering from influenza, pneumonia, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or any other condition which restricts breathing or affects the lungs will not alleviate those symptoms. In fact, it will almost certainly make it worse and will kill many of them. Intubation tubes are a source of potential infection known as ventilator-associated pneumonia, which studies show affects up to 28% of all people put on ventilators and kills 20 to 55% of those infected. Mechanical ventilation is also damaging to the physical structure of the lungs, resulting in ventilator-induced lung injury, which can dramatically impact quality of life and even result in death. Experts estimate 40 to 50% of ventilated patients die, regardless of their disease. And around the world, between 66 and 86%
of all COVID patients put on ventilators died. Now, there are other things here that uh, that come into play. Masks don't work. Masks are bad for your health. Masks are bad for the planet. Uh, then they get to the vaccines. COVID vaccines are totally unprecedented. Vaccines do not confer immunity or prevent transmission. They were rushed and have unknown long-term effects. And vaccine manufacturers have been granted legal indemnity should they cause harm. And then the final part has to do with the deception and foreknowledge. Like the EU was preparing vaccine passports for at least a year before the pandemic began. That is kind of curious. And a training exercise predicted the the pandemic just before it started. Weeks before. October 2019, the World Economic Forum and Johns Hopkins University held Event 201. And since the beginning of 2020, what has happened to the flu? Flu cases have disappeared. And finally, the elites have made fortunes during the pandemic. I think you're going to really like this COVID crib sheet. It really does have some great facts for you to sock away as intellectual ammunition. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network.